What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 57 of the Hashishin, presented by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Connor, aka Turp Wizard, based out of Michigan. He talks to us about his recent pheno hunt adventures, including the viability of one percenters and changing his approach to it this year, as well as expanding on why he's been focusing on regenerative practices for the past few years including making seeds, always trying to evolve, and much more. So definitely stay tuned for it. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with his V2 caps, the best ceiling carb caps in the game. You can grab yours on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass or on his website, ZachBrownGlass.com. I want to give all the people who are part of our community on Patreon a huge thank you for all their support as their support allows me to continue doing this work. Without it, I couldn't. So thank you again. If you ever can or want to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com backslash the hashishin. That's the hashish I-N-N, where you can also grab the same t-shirt guests receive, stickers, extra episodes, early releases, and more. You can also join via our Instagram bio at the hashishin or on our website, thehashishin.com. Also, a huge shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our friends and partners, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. Whether you're looking for the best steel and hash in their high quality full mesh wash bags, which come in a variety of sizes from five to 55 gallons, or you're looking for the rosin bags trusted by makers all over the nation, you can find it all at rosinevolution.com. Also, be sure to check out their new collection tool, the Mini Hashula, and as always, rely on their high-grade products as much as on their stellar customer service and to save an additional 5% on your entire purchase while supporting the podcast. Use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710-THI-710, altogether saves you 5% on your entire order at rosinevolution.com while supporting the podcast. Shout out to our homies Toro, one of the true legacy glass brands who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass where you'll find a variety of high-end glass rigs and tubes including their nano rigs and cyclers. It's also where you'll find the original slurpers or more recent creations, Toro's Terp Slides and Terp Tasters, as well as a variety of accessories like marbles and millies. So no matter where you are in the world, if you appreciate functional glass art with an emphasis on function and artistic design, then visit our homies Toro, again, at toroglassgallery.com or Instagram at toro underscore glass. Check out our homies and sponsors, Hashhead Outfitters, who you can follow on Instagram at hashheadoutfitters or their website, hashheadoutfitters.com, where they specialize in comfortable gear for hash lovers, whether you're looking for a cozy hoodie in a variety of stylish colors, 
made of responsibly sourced 100% cotton, or you're looking for a hashi gift for the holidays for a friend or yourself, they have a variety of apparel, hats, and accessories. So go grab the gear that makes you feel extra cozy with that dab at hashheadoutfitters.com or on Instagram at hashheadoutfitters. Again, a special thank you to Zach Brown Glass for providing all the guests this year with my favorite carb caps, his V2 series. It's the only cap I use, and if you want to make your adapts that much more efficient, grab yours at ZachBrownGlass.com or Instagram at ZachBrownGlass. I appreciate you listening, and I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 57 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shirag Mamir. Today, I'm super stoked to be here with Connor, a.k.a. Turp Wizard. You can follow him on Instagram at Turp underscore Wizard. Welcome, Connor. How are you doing, dude? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. I appreciate you coming on. I know it's a busy time of year for you, and I know you're going to get in the garden right after we get off here, so I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, it's a pretty busy time of year for us. We run an indoor garden continuously, and then we are just starting to get through the tail end of our greenhouse material. So there's a lot of work to be done, both indoors and out. The transition into fall, like to amend our beds, get everything tucked away for the winter time so that when springtime comes around, um, we don't have to do too much more amending and can get rolling and getting uh, plants in the garden come early summer. Have you always cultivated indoor and outdoor? No. So once we moved properties to a spot where there was more acreage and a little more seclusion, we started to grow outside and found a really nice property still close to the amenities in our in our town, but far enough out where all of our neighbors have a fair amount of space and we won't really get bugged or like any nosy neighbors or whatnot. Before you were cultivating primarily indoor then, I'll assume? Yeah, I've been doing indoor cultivation since I think I popped my first seed indoors in, and got it fully through flower in 2012. And what have you seen, if anything, in the difference between, for example, some of these cultivars indoors and outdoor, or have you had that opportunity? Yeah, so this was the first year where we took selections from that we are pretty familiar with indoors and ran them outdoors in the greenhouse. And a lot of things were very similar profiles, but they gained some more depth and just became a little more complex. A couple things completely switched up on us, like the creme de grappaya, a strain we made a couple years ago, which is papaya times grape cream cake. Inside, it is pretty much 50-50 candy, papaya, and and sweet grape. Or outdoors, it went into like a cheesy kind of profile, which I'm guessing is like still the papaya side, and then kind of like a sweet grape note. So it was a, a, a wild change for us to see and experience from something we thought we knew so well. Has it affected any other parts of the plant, for example the resin production, or how it's performed in the washroom? I'd say for the most part, it's pretty similar. I mean, this is first year Hugels. So things will get better with age Hugel cultures for people who are not aware. It's a basically you're stacking logs or 
dead wood on the bottom and then building different layers, kind of like a lasagna. And yeah, we do regenerative farming out here. So use the stuff that's available. We're DEM pure certified farm. So yeah, I think with age, maybe the resin production will get potentially a little bit better outside. But this year it was up to par with what we see inside. Maybe slight differences, but nothing too noticeable, not like a whole percent or anything like that. But it was nice to see some of those strains that we liked indoors. Some of them performed better, some of them worse. The trapaya, for instance, comes out pretty dry indoors. And then outdoors, it was more of a wet rosin and overall produced the most fresh frozen weight for us per plant. Stayed pretty true to the characteristics I'm used to, like a bushy plant. And we plan to run a lot more of that outdoors next year because it did so well for us. Yeah, one of the things I've heard about outdoor plants sometimes is that they can possibly produce more terpenes or maybe like you're saying earlier, different types of terpenes. Yeah, I'd have to agree with all the feedback we got and the experience that I had with the plants. I think that you can't really beat growing under the sun and in in soil. It's just way different than indoors. Makes me bummed we only get one full-term shot a year here, but you know, kind of also is a nice ebb and flow. We get to have this time in between to really think about what we want to do next year, plan and try to hunt things in preparation for next year to bring out there and, and try to offer more options for people moving forward and then and then take the feedback like, oh, they liked seemed like this strain killed it. People really liked it. We're gonna run more of that, like the trapaya and the honey uh sherbana, which is also known as mad honey. We got that as a freebie. So we picked the name before the name became public, but both of those did really great for us. There's a couple others we didn't keep clones of, like the shallot sashimi, which we called banana pudding pop. That one did awesome. It made this like beautiful white hash in the bag and just pressed out amazing. It smelled like like a ripe green banana, which it, we got more of like the faux fana side of things. So yeah, it was, it was a really rewarding season. Um, I hit all my goals that I wanted to in that the first year. So I'm hoping when we get the second one done, we can just become that more abundant and, and try to learn every season because every season is different. So you can take the same lessons you learned from last year, but it's not always going to apply the exact same the following year. Now, you just mentioned that part of the reason that you keep some of these specific cuts or ones that you found yourself is the feedback from the public. Is that part of your process in what you decide to have in your stable? Well, I think it starts with us. Like I'm I'm making the decision and then I'll ask some of the people who I work with second. And if we can come to agreement, that's like, oh, this is this is something special. We really like this. I think we're kind of missing this in what we're offering. And then once it gets out to people, we'll start getting feedback and that will kind of push things. So like we have this one strain I really like running and I think it grows great. It checks all the box on my end. It just seems to be something that's always one of the last things to get bought up. So for me, there's clearly something lacking there and I could find a better expression of something else or, you know, tastes and preferences are regional. So maybe 
that would do better somewhere else. But for us, that specific variety is just not resonating with people. And I'm finding, at least here in Michigan, this time of year too, I feel like sometimes it changes depending who shows up to what. But fruit and gas are pretty loved out here. Like the chem profiles are still pretty popular. Like the funky Afghani stuff too. Some of the like papayas and strawberry guavas and and things like that seem to be very popular from what I'm seeing on how well it does for us. And then as well as what I'm seeing on other people's menus, like there's a lot of the same cuts kind of floating around in Michigan. So to see those things, we try to avoid that or find our own hybrid version of it. You know, not just have the same stuff everyone else is. We don't take in any cuts other than to make seeds and that goes directly outside. So everything that we've we offer is hunted from a seed and we don't sell any of our clones or genetics. So you truly have to come to us to experience that specific version of the, of the strain. And what do you feel like that adds to your farm or to your brand, if you want to call it that? Well, in the combination of making our own seeds and then hunting everything, we have certain flavors or combination of things that other people don't have like the cheeseburger haze specifically that's a hazelnut cream crossed to chem and original haze that one's pretty unique it's smells like it reminds me of a memory of going to mcdonald's with my grandparents growing up and getting like a pickle and onion cheeseburger and it kind of smells like dead on to that memory so when we had it this weekend at our local meetup which is called Harim, people were loving it. They're like, dude, this smells like a cheeseburger. It smells like a cheeseburger off the grill. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what we were going for. I'm happy that you got that without me telling you. I mean, the name definitely influences people. But yeah, I think those things like hunting weird stuff or finding like smaller seed makers and and hunting that, not just going with the bigger guys because their seeds always going to be out there and it's it's easy to, to do that. And like, run what other people are running, but then you're kind of just competing with the same stuff and there's not really anything unique. And I think that's why we've been resonating with people so well recently. It's because of all the all the risks we're taking, constantly running seeds and trying to hunt stuff and like thinking about our menu in a different way. Like what's lacking? What what do we have too much of? What should we get rid of? What are we missing? Let's let's go deep into that and try to find some different version of that. Like we've been pretty heavy hunting Z because we don't really have a lot of, at least in the part of Michigan I'm at, I don't really see a lot of Z. And and my reference point for Z is probably a lot different than other people. So we found a really nice Z starfighter um, that we're about to get into flower. And I'm hoping that that one will be kind of filling the place until we find the next version or maybe better version, but the test wash was super promising. And we're also hunting through some pink Z from Dab Logic and the tail end of some cranberry Skittles, which has been really interesting too. I've been seeing a lot of people running that from like simply Adam, Ginger Larf, and Zooted, and all of them have really great expressions. And ours is like some are pretty close to that. So I was stoked to to sift through those. And I think at some point here soon, it'll be a regular rotation. We also made a version of um, rainbow belts crossed with a good sarsaparilla, which we called day tripper 
um, an homage to Fallout. There, that's one of the like drugs you can use in the game. So that one kind of smells belty. So we'll we'll see where that all comes together here in the in the following months. And this last one that you mentioned, that's an original creation of yours. Yeah. So occasionally, so every year we make seeds outdoors, but from time to time, if I find a male very interesting indoors or that gets past our sifting process, I'll let it open up a couple pollen sacks and then sift the seeds out either in the wash and then dry it in a paper towel. Or if I can find it pretty easily, like majority of the time with how those pollen sacks open up and all the plants being in a certain stage of flower, they'll be in a point that's really easy to locate in the bud structure near the bottom. And it'll be like a really fat calyx, which is abnormally looking larger than the rest. So that's usually where the seeds are at. We don't get a ton, maybe like on a good pollination, like 20, 30 seeds. So it's not something that would ever get released, but just a fun little side project, trying to combine some things together and and see what we get. We have a few things like that, that we're occasionally sifting through when we want to see if that is going to be what we expect it to be. You mentioned risk a little while ago in regards to continuously popping seeds and having that be part of your process of trying to diversify and almost, it sounds like, fill in your menu with a variety of flavors and options. Is part of that risk going with breeders or seed stock that might not normally be associated with like water hash genetics? I think the first year that we had this garden going, this is year three at this spot. Um, or getting into year three. I think we've maybe had the garden going two years, like the indoor garden. So year one, we hunted a lot of fruit and I had some seed stock kept back for like an opportunity like this. Then year two, after we found some nice fruit options, we started to go into more of like the gassy stuff. So the last year we've done tons of gas and trying to get like a little balance on both sides. And during that process of hunting gas, we kind of took more risks and we're hunting like skunks and like hazes. And traditionally those things don't wash. And like in some of them, you don't get the attributes and and the the rare occasions you do find washers. You might not find that, that haze at like trait you're looking for or like the skunkiness from a skunk. So yeah, going the non-traditional route of finding people who make seeds that you're like just stoked on hunting those genetics to see if you can find a washer is a lot more risk, especially if you're taking up your square footage to run it where you could do something that you know how it produces. And over the last two years, we've taken a lot of risks by instead of our big pots are like 20 and 30 gallon pots that we run that we could just put something that we know produces well. We'll put in like something is like, we don't even know if it's a guaranteed male or female yet. So we'll lose like a spot to male here and there or like something that doesn't produce. And, you know, financially, thank God we're on a small scale. If I was running this on like some large scale or commercial operation, I'd probably be out of business a long time ago. But because I've got a small team and they're super passionate, we can we can do stuff like that and take risks. And I think people are really starting to get hip to things that are like the wash percentages. So we have like our own tier of one percenters with a different side wrap. It's a holographic kind of similar, like growing up like Pokemon, get the holographic one. It's more desirable. And a lot of that stuff is like things that we're running that will never come back. 
It's it's a one and done. This is not viable. There's there's only one that or two that comes to mind that we do keep consistently, and it's the melon dough, and then the blueberry watermelon melon bread, and both of those are super unique, and people seek those out specifically from us. So we we keep those around. We don't run a lot of it, but we can get the plants bigger and have more fresh frozen weight, even though it's a 1%, I can still hit the minimum number for rosin that I shoot for per plant. Do you think in that case, for example, with those two specifically, those would be something that might do well outside if that flavor translates regarding like biomass? Do you produce more biomass outside versus indoor? And then that 1% becomes more viable? So we ran both of those outdoors this year in the greenhouse. And they, for being outside from the end of May and then being harvested in, I think, the tail end of September or maybe early October, they produced the same amount of fresh frozen weight as they did inside for something that only flowers for two months and has like a four-month turnaround time from like veg to flower. So it was not viable at all to run it outdoors either. But I think we still will run it outside next year in a small amount and then try to prep the plant to be bigger going outside in order to help us get a larger amount of fresh frozen for that time period. Because I could have flipped that plant two times over inside and gotten twice as much weight. But like I said, the beds are still very new. Maybe in the coming seasons that would change. And I feel like this season was interesting because it was kind of colder earlier in the summer than normal. That may have put the plants in a state of like just slower start. So we did harden them off. So I think that process would have been even worse if we just put them from a nice like tropical environment inside year round and then just try to put them in in the Michigan uh, late springtime where the ground's still cold and the, there's a good swing of uh, weather from week to week and day to day. So yeah, I, I'm I'm still going to run those. It's just figuring them out a little bit more and getting more familiar with those to see how they work for us in that situation. Yeah. And the melon bread, funny enough, I just had a little bit left and I finished off the other day and it's a pretty interesting profile. So I can see how people like it. You mentioned the term hardening. What does that entail? You have to, at least out here in Michigan and some other states where we don't have year round growing, we put our plants outside for a chunk of the day where it's the warmest and then I'll put it in. So I'll take the plant from my indoor setup, bring it outside when it's warm out. And for about a week, I'll try to keep it in the warm temperature of the day. And then once it starts to cool down, starts to get towards sunset, I'll put them in the barn and try to keep them not exposed directly to the elements, but still, you know, ambient temperature of a, of a space that doesn't get climate controlled. So it has time to slowly adapt to the environment and the change it's going to go through in order to survive in the new conditions that it's going to be growing in and, and going through the its whole life cycle. Now, in the case of these one percenters, this is something that has been talked about almost like theoretically on the show by a few people. Do you think that there are market exists for these one percenters? Are there people out there? who, for example, like the melon bread enough that, you know, by request, they're willing to 
spend more on something that's rare versus something that's more readily available? I think yes, because I find that people, once you explain to them why it's like that, or they already have a conceptual understanding of what 1% means, that they are willing to spend a little bit more for a special experience. I don't think it's for everyone. I don't think it's necessarily viable on scale unless that plant is a monster or you really, I don't know, on scale, like a larger, let's say metric grow or something like that. They have so many bills and overhead. I don't think you'd see something like that on their menu because, you know, maybe if they grew it outside, they could do something like that, but I doubt they'd keep it around. I bet they wouldn't hunt back through if they really love that and try to find something more productive for them. And I, I want to say you're more likely to find that on a, on a small grow, you know, like a caregiver grow like us where we don't have the same overhead as they do and are really about finding something unique that not everyone can find or is willing to find or take the risk. So I don't know. I'd I'd say if it's going to become a thing, it'd be a small scale thing. It's not going to be on the the wreck market anytime soon. As a cultivator though, does that allow you a unique opportunity to grow something that you enjoy maybe that, you know, doesn't hit these certain markers of percentages, but it's a different type of plant structure or different type of plant in general that you get to grow amongst other ones that you know that will produce. Yeah, there's a couple strains that definitely are more tedious. And then there's a couple that are like a a dream. Um, We grow this Kush for lunch. That one has some of the easiest trimming structure. The buds are nice and spaced. It's great. It it's checks all the boxes on formation that that would be something perfect for a larger operation just because it'd be really uniform, easy to trim. They get the points down quick and easy. Like for instance, our, our tally dog, that is just takes twice as long than any other plant to trim up. It's something really unique. That one expressed very interesting outdoors versus indoors too. Indoors, it was kind of like a sour taliman type of thing. That's how I would describe it. And then outdoors, it had this almost like bubble gum type of thing in the front and then the taliman in the back. So that front note switched from greenhouse to indoor. But yeah, that plant is is really unique. I don't have any taliman stuff going. I think we're going to be hunting some different stuff here soon. But yeah, I I think to the, the structures of plants are different, like what would work small scale versus large scale. So being small has been to my favor in a lot of ways over the last few years and and seeing how the progression of the Michigan market's been and talking to some of my friends that are in the mar- that side of the market and how difficult it is. I'm happy that I didn't decide to go down that route because I had an opportunity to, and that's kind of what led me to this spot here and kind of got me down this new path that we're on right now. Like the whole reason we moved to this spot here was because of the transition from wanting to go larger and then that not panning out necessarily how I wanted and deciding instead of working 
extremely hard to get to what I see my end goal living on a homestead situation. Why not just do what I want to do retirement and, and be a small scale farmer and work my land and do that uh, now while I'm young instead of waiting. Do you feel like that's something that you've come to appreciate is just this kind of unexpected shift in, you know, going to what you thought might be something that you would do in the future, having it be your reality now and looking to kind of grow upon that? I think at the beginning, that was the scariest moment for me because I moved to Michigan with the goal of transitioning from a small farmer to a large farmer. And along that path, I think I realized ultimately being the head of something like that, that the things that I find the most fun and enjoyable and exciting about doing this, I wouldn't necessarily get to do. And that kind of scared me. So I'm glad that I listened to my gut and decided that it was not the best decision for me and to intentionally stay small and try to figure out the landscape in the long term in Michigan and see if maybe in the future that that would be something that makes sense because we're seeing a lot of farms have hard times and dispensaries out here and there may be an opportunity once that first wave of stuff kind of falls to the wayside and there might be opportunities for things to come in at a more affordable rate and that makes sense and I think the experience that I've gotten in in the meantime would really play into that. Like, I don't think indoor cultivation would make sense with the way the market is. Like I'm seeing a few more farms, especially in our area, start to set up outdoor or year round greenhouses so that they don't have that same power bill because that's kind of a, a, a huge chunk of people's bills um, is the power company and, and their prices aren't going down. They just recently upped it here. Talk to people in California too. They got it a lot worse than we do from the sound of it. But yeah, we're just starting to feel the the pressures of those things, you know, and inflation, everything's kind of gone up. So I feel for those guys. It's hard. You know, it sucks to hear that what they love, they're facing hard times and might not be able to do it forever. And that was their dream. But, you know, I think they're learning really quickly how to adapt. And that's only going to make them better in the long run. It's only going to make them be able to withstand any other future stuff that's that we don't foresee. Like if um, statewide legalization happens and there's interstate commerce, like maybe that would either be good in the short term and, and bad in the long term. I think as supply and demand levels out, that's when some more hardship would be felt during that. But we're not even close to that. So even to theorize about it is kind of crazy. But from what I've seen living in Colorado and now living in Michigan and talking to some other states, there's kind of always this boom in the beginning. And if you're able to get in and get some good prices for your stuff, it, it helps you last a little bit longer than getting in on that second or third wave or, you know, figuring out maybe a more sustainable business model, like growing under the sun or something like that. So staying on topic, but shifting a bit with the indoor and the outdoor, what do you see the function at this point of the indoor being? Because you said at the beginning that because of the seasons in Michigan, or at least in your region, you're only able to do one of those harvests a year. So how does your indoor influence, is it basically becoming like a pheno hunting section or is it also 
where you're cultivating year round as well? Yeah, I would. So at the moment it's year round cultivation, but I believe with time um, after experience this season and, and just kind of loving that process, I think it will just be for pheno hunting in the years to come. I don't know exactly when that transition would happen, but I always try to have like a five-year goal. And I think somewhere in that time period, we'd transition from, you know, during the winter months, maybe doing some indoor to kind of just like keep things going and then, you know, kind of get that one big push in the fall of um, material to kind of last us. And then, you know, hunting too, so that we have something new to offer or at least like keep the, the genetics alive so that people can get what they enjoyed from the previous season again, the next. And it is interesting to see what does better indoors versus out. So I'm sure there's things that, that will only be inside moving forward. And then there'll be things that can do both. And then I think the ones that are only doing great outside will be a little bit harder to keep around just because I'm going to have to constantly put them in that state of being a mother, taking clones and just back and forth. But we'll end up doing that at some point. I haven't found one specifically that I think I would only run outdoors at. So far, the selection process for selecting indoors and then finding out they do good outdoors is working for us now, but we'll see in the future how that kind of evolves. For someone that may not be familiar with the term pheno hunting, how could you best explain what it is? So it would be growing a population of seeds and then sifting through those. So culling things you don't like, killing them off, and then selecting for traits that you do. So let's say I was going into a pheno hunt with the idea of finding something that washes with a particular expression. Like I wanted the Z terps. So I would go through some seeds, find some seeds that have that in the lineage, pop them, get them going, pull the runts, pull the males, unless I'm trying to make an F2. And then, yeah, do a little test wash or grow it out to fruition and then be like, this check the boxes, this didn't. And that's pretty much the gist of a pheno hunt. Has that process changed for you throughout time? Like how you go about doing it? Yeah. So after talking with a couple people at these various get togethers around the country, we found that the way that we were doing it was maybe not the most efficient. So we would use our, our larger pots that we would flower in. That is our most like valuable space in our garden and hunt that way. And then after talking to a couple of folks like the real cannabis, Chris and ginger larf and hearing how they do it in smaller pots, we've um, transitioned to taking a small corner of our flower room that has like a double stack shelf and putting some smaller like veg lights in it and just using the side lighting from closest flowering lights. And the combination of those will get the buds just big enough in the one gallons to be able to pull a like six to 12 gram test wash. So it's nothing crazy. We're, we're just doing some really small plants. And because we grow in soil, it's really hard to go from the beginning of popping a seed all the way through flower. So what we did is we took a clone tray and filled it with soil so that the one gallon sit on top of that. And then the, they essentially make a like seed mat and they or a root mat and they root out under that. So they have more nutrients and stuff to pull from that. And they don't exactly like, you know, finish all weird with yellowing out. So that's been really, really great for us and, and to change up our mindset on how we 
sift through genetics because it, um, we're we're just at the beginning part, but it it's already helped us narrow down a ton of selections and um, really get through a lot more seeds in a year. I think off the fun, what I call fun math, which isn't always practical, just fun numbers, we can get through, I want to say six times the amount of seeds we could before. That's quite a bit more. And I think this time next year, we'll really have a lot to show for that, for what we sifted through and then ultimately find better washers and some more unique things and not feel like we're taking as much risk. And then on the flip side, because we're not filling the flower room with these risky plants, potential males, now we're able to run more of what people like. So all around, it seems like a better move for us. And so far it seems to be, but we're still in like the first two, two population sifts or pheno hunts out of that. So time will tell with that. We're just, I think in a week or so, we're going to start sifting through the seeds you made this year and, and kind of test that stuff out before releasing it, which is going to be a nice way of going about that too. Cause then I can sift them on a small population, get an idea of how they do and then get them a new flower on a big one. And then, you know, potentially have the opportunity for people to have the ability to try the rosin from those strains when you buy the seed. So you could be like, oh shit, I can expect this. You know, I have data for them too. And yeah. So at this point, how many seeds do you think you're going through a year? Previously, we were doing somewhere probably in the range of 100. And I think the fun math, we'd probably be able to do about 600. But we'll see how that plays out practicality wise. I don't remember if I put in that equation to see 50% as male or males or not. But yeah, that, that when, whenever I did the, the math late at night and came up with that, <laughs> I, I found that I could do 600 seeds in a year compared to 100. So even if it's half that, that's still a lot more than we previous, previously could do. Obviously, that's a positive in many senses. Does it make it more difficult to figure out what you're actually going to keep in your stable to pop that many seeds and find potential wieners over and over again? I had to remind myself the goal of that on our first test wash because there was a couple plants um, out of the berry fizz. A lot of those have been really nice from Turp Fountain and it's been hard to narrow it down. So one of the guys I work with, Casey, was like, hey, you know, you got to pick the ones that are the best washers. So he helped me narrow down a couple. And at this point, we're down to two and I think today we're going to end up doing a couple more test washes and that could up maybe one, one more, but we're, we're really trying to be strict with it and then see how it goes from there. Cause I've got a lot of seeds to sift through. So if we don't find what we're looking for with this, we can find a different hybrid of that plant. So let's say like we were looking for berry terps or something, I can go hunt something else with berry genetics and hopefully find the traits I was looking for. And sometimes things pop up where you least expect them. Like I've tried to hunt cheese and I never find it. And then when I don't try to find it, it will show itself. Or like you said about, I think the Talimon where it expressed itself cheesy outdoor versus indoor, it could be something unexpected like that, I suppose as well. Yeah, that the creme de grappaya did that. And it was, I don't know, cheese is an a, elusive thing for me. I, I can't narrow it down. And it seems to be papaya is where I find it when I least expect it. I found it out of the Wook Sauce Cross I got from this smoking jacket two years ago. We found it in 
in that, which I think is bop gum to strawberry banana back cross. Don't quote me on that. There's something like that in the mix, but there's papaya. And we found like what was like a smoked cheese to me. That one ultimately didn't make the cut. We didn't keep around, but yeah, papaya seems to be where I find the cheese and never think I will in that, that realm. So at this point, how many keepers do you have? So at this point we have, I think 19 or 20. And for some reason I've come up with a magic number of 32. I want to have 32 keepers that I feel like wash really well, express something unique and don't really have too many overlaps in flavor. Like I'm not trying to get five versions of papaya on my menu. So hunting through different hybrids, trying to find the better version of it and then kicking that off or like getting rid of it. It's going to be interesting to see where, how that all plays out. But I think with time, it'll only make our our menu stronger to have more options and be able to go in those weird rabbit holes of, of fruit being like, Oh, we have a, a berry. We have a, a fruit and a gas. We have lemon citrus. We have orange citrus. We have a funky, like, creamsicle type of thing you know you can kind of just go in these more niche combinations of things and not have to stick with the traditional like one realm of flavors so hopefully that's where it takes us but i'm still at the beginning of this so it's kind of still in a concept idea but starting to see that it's it's paying off and how important do you feel like it is having this vision for example of like what you're looking for what you want not necessarily saying that you'll find it like you're saying about the cheese, but just having the vision of what it could be or what you want it to be. How important is that to how it leads you to do your work? I think that's been extremely important for me in in this new space was to have goals and visions and certain year plans to hit milestones. And that's, that's just how I operate and works what works best for me. So that might not be something that works great for the next person, but I need to have those things for me to keep, keep me going and to keep things fresh and exciting and to be able to look back and feel like I made progress from one point to the next. And it's another thing that's been, you know, helpful to kind of guide this is to go to different places, like to go to, Southern California, to go to Northern California, to visit Oregon, to visit Maine, to see Oklahoma, to go to Colorado and like see what they are doing there and experience their markets and get an idea. And then hopefully maybe next year to experience Spain and see what it's like internationally and in different parts of the world to see what those people are hunting and try to figure out who's doing the fun projects that are unique to those specific realms and try to acquire the seeds there and and grow that out and bring that to my place. And, you know, they don't always work, but at least it was something fun and exciting. And I feel like going to all these like gatherings and competitions, you meet these people and and they have the seeds available before they drop it. So then you get to be the first one who has access to it. And I've had that happen a couple of times. Like the ego clash seems to be a big place for people to debut seeds for the first time. Cause it's, it lines up in a, in a 
time in the year where it gives you enough time to pull down your full season plants to dry them and then sift them. You won't necessarily have them tested out. That would be, that's not even achievable because of how the timeline were, unless you did a depth, but most likely not. That's a whole other thing. But at least you get an idea of what's going on there and, and what the new flavor of the year is or what, what what's the cut that made it around that everyone's making seeds with. Shout out to our homies and partners, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you'll find everything you need to make rosin, whether that's the best deal in hash in their affordable and reliable full mesh wash bags, or in Rosin Evolution's high-grade rosin bags, which are trusted by makers all over the nation, from small batch to commercial. They've got you covered with their amazing customer service that gets you what you need, when you need it. So if you press rosin or you wash hash, grab everything you need at rosinevolution.com. And to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI710 altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense, man. Well, I think this is a good time for a smoke break. You done? Yep. All right, sounds good. So you mentioned being in Colorado. Is that where you're originally from? No, I moved out there to go, moved out there to go to um, CU Boulder and ultimately didn't like what I was doing there and decided to do culinary school in Boulder, which was a 10 month program broken into three sections. One was in the classroom. So like working basically like you're going there like a nine to five and, and doing intro level cooking stuff. So like how to prepare different versions of potatoes, how to break down animals, you know, the basics. And then if I'm remembering correctly, that was about eight months. And then the last two months we went to various farms in the community and seeing where food came from and the connection, how the kitchen and the farms play together to make a symbiotic relationship between the two and how, you know, understanding how to source your food. Like if you were going to be working in Boulder, who to source it from? Cause these are some of the bigger farms out there that the nicer restaurants that were focused on a farm to table aspect were buying from. And then the last was doing a um, internship. And besides the kitchen part, the, the part that resonated the most with me was the farms. And I think that's kind of like where I could see myself if I didn't figure out a lane in the culinary world that worked for me. And ultimately I, I didn't like working in the kitchens. I wish I would have done the baking program instead of the culinary. Cause that that's what I ended up doing after school was working in various forms of bakeries. At the time, were you already consuming cannabis? Uh, yeah, I'd started consuming cannabis at 14. One of my friends who had been smoking for a couple of years stole some weed from his dad. And then me and another friend uh, <laughs> smoked. And I got like ridiculously almost what, what's the best way to describe this? You know how like a roll of film has like the picture and then a black spot? I was like continuously 
having that in real life. Like I'd have a moment and then have a blackout and then a moment of blackout. Yeah. After that moment, I, it was like in the same week I went from smoking to selling. Cause I was like, Oh, I can smoke for free if I sell. Yeah. It kind of began, began there and just has like always been a part of my life in some way since. Yeah. I can totally relate to that kind of film like effect that you mentioned. I think the first time that I really got quote unquote high because I had smoked a few times before I really felt it. I did have that similar kind of sensation where you're, you're almost seeing in frames. So I think that that's kind of an interesting thing, but your move to Colorado doesn't seem to be really have been motivated by cannabis at all. Were you kind of taking advantage if you want to say that regarding like the medical laws and being able to visit dispensaries at that point? Yeah. So if you were my parents, you would have thought it was related to school. But if you were my friends and me, you knew it was really behind cannabis because at the time they had their medical program, you know, I'd, I'd gotten in trouble as a minor for possession and distribution and paraphernalia. So I just wanted to move somewhere where I didn't really have to worry about that. In Colorado, I had fallen in love with as a, as a kid because we'd go out there for like ski vacations and my birthday falls on uh, spring break most years. So we'd go out there for, for ski season and, and have a week to be able to ski and, and whatnot. So that's kind of how I ended up in Colorado compared to somewhere else. And yeah, it was, it was really great for me at that time period in my life. I moved by myself out there, which really gave me the freedom and time to figure out who I was and the path I wanted to go down in life. And, you know, ultimately got me here in Michigan. I don't think if I had that experience, I would have taken the the risks of, you know, being self-employed, having cannabis support me in so many ways in my life. Were you smoking cannabis oils at the time in Colorado? Yeah. So I want to say right before I moved out there, my brother-in-law showed me what a dab was. And that was the day of, that was the time of like those highly education nails that were domeless. You just heat them up and you take like right after it's done glowing, maybe you'd wait like two or three seconds while it's still fucking ripping hot. There's no dab rights or no fucking nothing like that. You took your hand over it. You're like, that seems good. And then just roast it. And the oil looked terrible. It was just like so dark brown, potentially even black. I mean, I don't even remember, but it was disgusting. I wouldn't even, if someone pulled that out now, I'd think it was Reclaim or like RSO or they were just messing with me. Like, look how bad this is. But yeah, I mean, it, it got me down that route. And then I was really lucky for where I was at because a few of the dispensaries in town, Green Dream and Greenest Green had some really nice stuff. They had the original Green Dot and 710 Labs drop. And at the time, oh, and as well as trichome heavy extracts. And if I went out to Denver, I could go to Cam was great at the time. They were mainly flowered. I don't know if they're around anymore. They weren't by the time I left, but I don't know if they were able to come back. And then um, there's another one that I'm drawing a blank on. They had the first melt I ever tried. I think you tried the cheese from there. All greens? That's it. Yep. It's all greens. So yeah, there were some really nice spots to begin that journey on. And as a college student, I maybe couldn't afford all the best stuff all the time, but because I was the only one in my friend circle who had the license, 
there'd be deals that they'd run and I would occasionally just pick up for other people. And then off of the deal, I'd get the free, you know, buy whatever, get one free or whatever. And I'd be able to get some good stuff for me, get some head stash. So going back to that, that brown or black oil that you smoked for the first time, how was that experience? Even though the oil wasn't great, like how was that first dab for you? It was amazing. I knew the second I had, I was like, oh, I need to get more of this, even though it wasn't great by today's standards by any means. It was totally different. And it's not like we got bad flour in our area. Like we always had good stuff, even like by today's standard of like by the by the craft stuff. I'm not talking about what you can get at the shops. It was it was still a really good herb. So yeah, I I, I was wanting to figure out how I could do it. But after seeing and experience the process firsthand, like open blasting in one of my friends like backyard or like common space in between their apartments and like seeing like, dude, this looks so fucking sketchy. Like your neighbor's going to call on you. Like how many times have you done this? And just like the the ability to potentially blow yourself up. I was not going to give much thought about actually pursuing that. So when I found the company Tricom Heavy Extract and realized the process of it and we were like, I think at the time we were making rosin by pressing flour, like a hair straightener. First is by stepping on it. And we bent so many hair straighteners that my friend found those clamps that you can get and like squeeze down and apply more pressure. And we're like, oh, this is cool. Found a press. I think it was the Sasquatch V1 or some shit. I had that up to like a couple years ago. And um, yeah, I started pressing flour and then eventually like, oh, we should, we should try making hash and the first attempt was really bad. It was just way too aggressive. I got a set of bubble bags. I bought a paint mixer attacher for a drill and just like went full speed and beat the crap out of it. And there wasn't a single pull that wasn't green. And it was, it was something. And in some way it got me here. But you know, if, like I said, if I would have seen that now, I wouldn't even try that. But that was my first attempt at that time. And in some way it got me down this rabbit hole and it definitely made me think about the process a little bit more. I was like, okay, why did this turn out green? What can I do to make this better? I think this was pre-freeze dryer too, because like the pizza box tech was the the thing. So you get a cardboard box and you microplane it or whatever, get it into smaller granules and air dry it. And I didn't really have much success in that, even being in a dry place like Colorado, but you know, it, it definitely led me down the path of refining the process and trying to get to what I'm have access to at the store. A question in regards to the pizza box, were you doing lined with like parchment or were you doing straight to the cardboard? Dude, uh, you know, as much as I'd love to say it was lined with parchment because this was my first time, it was just on cardboard. Thankfully, it was not a used pizza box, if that makes it any better, <laughs> but it was on a cardboard box still. it Not a smart move, but I didn't have access to much information at the time. So I was just kind of, flying by the seat of my pants and thinking about like whatever my buddy would tell me about the process he learned from a friend. And it honestly wasn't that much. Yeah. It was interesting to, to think back on that and to think where we are now. Yeah. And I think that, you know, pizza cardboard tech was something that was being taught kind of online a little bit. So I think that was part of maybe where that possibly was coming from, but it's always interesting to me to kind of look back and you know, it hasn't been that long, but like you said, there's obviously been refinements, not only in your process, but in everybody's process over time. Yeah, I think that was about a decade ago now. So lots of things have changed 
in that time period. So you really liked the oil. When you got to Colorado, you had all these different variations of it, examples of it, different dispensaries that you could get it from. And you mentioned trichome heavy extracts as being a source of inspiration into moving into like the ice water process. Were you at the same time cultivating already? Or when did you start getting into that from the culinary school? So, yeah, I was cultivating at the time. Flower was still at a good ticket. And the person I was working with at the time had connections. So we would experiment with a couple buds here and there to do it just as like fun. It was like more out of my portion of it. But because of how the market was and my lack of experience and no connections to really like buy the stuff I was making, um, we didn't really invest that much time into it. And that was like one of the things that I was set on changing once I moved to Michigan that was like, first off, no partners. And then second off, I'm focusing on solventless production. Partnerships can be interesting. Anyone who's been in them knows that they're difficult and it's hard to find the right partner with the right vision that complements what you're doing and can match your work ethic and not feel like it's a one-sided thing. So as much as I would like to split the workload with someone and responsibilities, it's much better to be the the sole individual with a a vision. I've just found that it, it hasn't worked out for me in the past. So would you say that's one of the things that you learned from that experience in cultivating with someone else in Colorado? Among other things, yeah, I would say, you know, we were running clones too. So I wanted to pop more seeds and, and I don't remember exactly how, but we never would really run the seeds on large number. Maybe a couple would make it to it, but I had to eventually do another side project. We were growing at my house and in the garage, we flipped a one of the garage bays into like an eight lighter or something. And then I finally set up another two lights in my basement. That was just like another side project. And that's where I grew the seeds, but they never made it into the big room. So that was, those were like the two things I wanted to focus on solventless production and get more into seeds when I moved. And yeah, it was, it was just getting to that point to make the leap where I had really nothing to lose once we moved here to just go for it. I think at the first, my last house in Michigan, I was, running clones pretty much till the end there and, you know, popping seeds here and there, but realizing the stuff that was the most unique from our last spot was the stuff we popped from seed really brought home that point that I need to focus primarily on that. I'm curious what some of the clones that you guys were running at the time were, if you remember. So in Colorado, we ran, so we were, my partner was really connected with a couple of the grocery store workers. And that at the time that was the biggest grocery store in central Denver. So there was the, you know, the clone lady, as we called her. Never, I don't think I ever learned her name, but she had access to a bunch of cool stuff. I think the more familiar stuff was like pre-98 Bubba, grew some Gorilla Glue. I think we even got some, there's like a goat strain. Golden goat, I think is what it was. I think we grew some of that maybe as well. Yeah, I do remember getting some golden goat when going out into Colorado before. Yeah, the time period where we were out there and the connections we had, that one's ringing a bell too. 
But then we grew some other weird shit like Lorax and I don't know, some weird ones that I'm sure were just renamed. Like they didn't, they weren't supposed to be out there or like maybe it was green crack or who fucking knows, you know, but yeah. And then when I moved to Michigan, some of the clones that I was, I was getting some locally. And I think the ones I got locally were chem grill glue again. That was shortly after I moved from Colorado. So that was kind of a familiar strain with me. And then I started finding various clone companies. So I'd order stuff from them. So some of like the Cali flavors and stuff. So, or at least that's where they're sourcing them from. Maybe that wasn't the flavors that were hot there, but you know, banana OG was one of them. GMO. I got that out here locally in in Michigan. And I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, but it's, those are the two that came to the top of my mind first. And you express having an interest to almost exclusively go for solventless once you moved out to Michigan. Where did that come from? Well, that's what I was mainly consuming. And after experiencing the shift in prices in Colorado, the price was higher than what I was used to, even at the peak when I moved back uh, to Michigan. And I kind of got a taste for potentially how the future of Michigan's market would go. And I was like, you know what? This is what I like smoking. I foresee the flower market not sticking around. I don't really enjoy the process of harvesting for flour. So the combination of all three of those things made it so that I wanted to go exclusively for solventless production. And it was pretty hard at the beginning convincing some people to let me process their stuff. And there was some mistakes made, you know, on accepting material that wasn't up to par. I remember one time that we got this like trim bin hash that was like a solid puck. Like they, they vac sealed it into like this huge chunk, like to the point where you'd have to get a knife or like a grater to break it down into something even worth washing. And I was just like, I can't do anything with this. I don't even know what you would do with this. This is like brick hash. But, you know, over the years, taking in material from people's outdoors and and not visiting the garden. Like there was one year where we went out there and harvest the guy's stuff because I wanted to make sure that he knew what to do for the, the next year. And it was a really wet year. And we got everything we could from what I thought was good. And then a week later they called me like, Hey, we got some more bags. So I'm like, Oh, that's weird. I, all right, let's, let's take that and see what it is. So we get it in and I start viewing the material before we wash it. And like there were gloves in it. So the first thing I thought they didn't give a shit, right? Cause if there's gloves in it, they weren't even taking that much time to begin with. And then like the inside of the buds were Brown. So it was bud rot. And I, I called them up after looking, I was like, Hey man, like, we got everything that's good. This is all bad. Like I would, I would compost this and get the gloves out. Like that's the best thing you're going to do. He had goats too. So I know he was like feeding the goats, some of the plant stuff, but I don't even know if you'd want, I don't think it'd be good to feed bud rot to goats. I would just straight compost that. I'm assuming that started teaching you a lot about some of the things that you should be aware of and, and careful about when doing tool processing for people. Yeah, I think the over the years i've gotten some better ideas of what i need to do in order to set not only myself up but them up for success so i try to go to their garden as much as possible well when i did take on more work that was toll processing 
I would go do that. We are starting to do less and less. And I'm hoping that next year, I'm pretty much just going to be single source. My brother-in-law and father-in-law have the spot together that they're just getting going. And I think those would be the only people that I'd be running next year. I've had the pleasure of working with um, Lime Rising Farm, Nick and Shannon, and that's been really great. But the amount of work I've had this year from our spot has been really challenging and hard to find the balance between our outdoor, my indoor, their outdoor, and just, you know, having a regular life and trying to spend time with my wife. And I just don't know if I can do all those things if I want to potentially invest more time into outdoor next year and try to grow more out there because that would have a lot more material come down all at once, which, you know, kind of creates this backlog of stuff. So yeah, as much as I enjoy when it goes right with toll processing, I feel like I've had a fair amount of experience where it's going wrong. And I think we will probably be stepping away from that once we get through the remaining agreements I have with people um, at this point. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And I mean, again, you know, I guess it goes back to all about scale. And like you said, you're, you're a small farm, so you can only dedicate certain amounts of energy and time to certain things. And if you're going more in on like your own projects and growing those, I can see how that would happen over time. Yeah. As much as I want to do all the jobs that I feel like are worth it moving forward. It's like, I don't want to feel burnt out and I don't want to get to a point where I'm not appreciating the whole experience because there's a lot of time and effort in this material that comes to you. And for me to feel exhausted or rushed when I get to it really doesn't do a service to the amount of time that they put in to get to this point. Cause Nick create some of the seeds. So that's years in the making to get to this point and to not fully appreciate it and and be present and trying to really get as much as we can of high quality medicine out of these plants. It just feels like a disservice. And I don't, I don't want it to feel like a job. I want to still, still feel inspired and love the process. So that's been a realization I've had lately of sometimes less is more. Going back to when you were cultivating in Colorado, you said part of what you didn't like was preparing the material for dry flower versus the fresh frozen. When you were taking those portions of your batches to experiment on, were you already working with fresh frozen? Uh, to begin with, no, it was dry. We, we tried pressing fresh nugs once or twice, and some of those were purple flowers, so they would like squeeze out a purple liquid because it wasn't quite like rosin. It was more wet. And then we tried to dry it and smoke it. And that was not good. It was just additional moisture that was in there. So the dabs that got exposed to this purple liquid would explode like fireworks (laughs) in the nail. It'd be snapping, crackling and popping. So yeah, eventually we realized we had to do dried flour. There wasn't really a fresh frozen idea in our mind yet. I think even the first time I made the bubble hash, it was from maybe like smalls or trim post dry. I hadn't really experimented with fresh frozen or the idea of it until we would take some of those smalls um, once they would add up to like 
BHO extractors in, in Colorado. So then that kind of, you know, once I learned that that's what people were doing to make this beautiful rosin and um, bubble, that's the way to go. So what, I think that transition of going to fresh frozen mainly happened for solventless production for me when I moved to Michigan, but we did do a little bit of it in Colorado to send off to extraction people. We recently had Fred Morris on and he talked about how he felt that people in the culinary world, specifically maybe like line workers, would be best suited to doing something like hash making that has a certain kind of rhythm and process to it. Would you agree to that? And do you think that that's played any factors into your hash making craft? Yeah, there's a lot of things I feel like that translate directly from the culinary world. And I've met some really high caliber hash makers that make amazing stuff that were previously in the culinary field as well. You know, I, I think first and foremost, it's cleanliness. That's a huge thing in the kitchens and then attention to detail and figuring out how to like be methodical with how you're doing, doing the same thing over or slightly improving on it. So I feel like those in particular are great skills to have that translate directly from culinary to hash production. How do you feel like your process has evolved since you got to Michigan, since that was really, it feels like the first time that you had an opportunity to, like we talked about earlier, working towards a vision, in this case, solventless, in this case, doing fresh frozen. How do you feel like your whole process has changed over time? So from the paint bucket (laughs) to today, it's been a, a large change. We Started off in the bubble magic washers, which I never really was able to nail down. Great material coming out of that. I think maybe one out of the few dozen times I used that. And then we went from doing that to hand washing. And that was for the longest time what we did until this time last year when I was able to get a hashtag unit and I got the 25 and 50 gallon interchangeable system that sits on a tabletop and that's done wonders for us for larger batches, but I still do all of our smaller stuff. Most of the time, anything under 4k, uh, fresh frozen material I'll do by hand. And then the larger ones I'll do in the machine. Or if I'm like washing by myself, I'll put it in the washer or in the hashtag. And then on the pressing side, Oh, you know what too? Um, to go back to the washing, we've, we were doing a lot of like 20 and 15 minute cycles and then collecting. So like do like 20, 15 to 20. I think we started out, started out 20, went down to 15. And then recently after listening to the Kinjana episode with Marley and him talking about shorter washes, funny enough, I was talking to Meltwalkie about this and we, we both did, we talked pretty regularly and without speaking to each other, listening to the episode, we both changed our wash times to like six to eight minutes. And on the shortest ones, we do four. I, I don't know about him specifically, but I know we went down to six. We both did about six or eight. And I'm finding that wash time is great for us. We can still get the same amount of fresh frozen sometimes, or sorry, get the same amount of bubble hash out, sometimes a little bit more. And we can even go farther into the washes and the hash is not like turning green. It's still looking great. So on the press side, we went from, you know, a Sasquatch V1. And then I got a 
peer pressure, which something else I've learned on sometimes the most expensive tool isn't the best tool for your situation. And for us, I thought that spending all this money on a press was going to be great. In reality, that version before uh, we had, you know, to hit a button and then the plates went down. And I felt like that wasn't quite as touchy as I needed to and would regularly get blowouts and not have the best return from the hash to rosin. Like we were lucky to get like a high 60, low 70%. And then after going to the first coffee and donuts and seeing people are, you know, it was actually Ken Wall's class in Oklahoma. I think they were using a low temp. So I got my low temp and our pressing returns went up from 70 to 80s and 90s just by switching the press and going to a hand pump. You know, now we have that low temp that we still have and then a powers plate. Yep, we have that. And I really like the powers plate personally um, because it's a bigger surface area and it's a lot more simpler. It's not really the a, a great travel unit. So if you were to do any classes or try to go somewhere and press for someone, I would still think that compact low temp would be a little bit better. Yeah, overall for something that's stationary, I really prefer the powers plate unit. So we've had a, a few different makers of plates and found that for our use, those those two are the best. They're not the most expensive. Like powers plate setup was pretty cheap. I got like dented plates, so they were cheap, cheaper than normal. And then I went to Harbor Freight or something and bought like a Dake something ton press and have that. So it's pretty cheap in comparison to some of these other companies, but it does the job great for us. What is it that you like about the extra surface area? Does it allow you to do more hash at a time? Are you able to spread it out more evenly? What do you feel like it's providing you? I guess there's less uh, worry for air, right? Because I have a little bit more room on each side for the bag to fit in there and not feel like the potential for blowout. So I don't think we run any more. Both of them we do the same amount on, but I would be willing to, to, I just feel more comfortable using it. I suppose I don't, I'm not as worried about a blowout, which still happens from time to time, but not, not as much as it did back in the day. In regards to the washing vessels, when you do the handster, do you apply the same amount of time? For example, going back to adjusting your times to shorter washes, do you do the same thing that you do in the hashtag, which is less time per wash now? Yeah, I do. The hashtag has a hour range from one to a hundred. So I can really dial in a lot of variables with that and make it pretty much the same every time so that I can be like, all right, the routine's the same. So the data shouldn't have, it'll have one less variable. We're like hand washing. There's still the variable of like, am I washing it? Is another person washing it? How much pressure? You know, the numbers are still pretty similar by hand washing, you know, it makes sense for smaller stuff, but yeah, each, each one of those has their own purpose, I suppose. What do you feel like the automation brings to you? I know you mentioned a few points just now, but if you had to summarize outside of the quantities that you're able to do at the same time. Well, when we were doing longer washes, it gave me the ability to go do something else. It still does, you know, they're shorter cycles. So if I was by myself and I really wanted to push it, I could do a hand wash and a vessel and then try to collect in between. I would have some downtime where one of them isn't being washed maybe as efficiently it would, but I could still get through two different batches of material at once. 
But yeah, I'd say that the main thing is just the volume that you can get through. The unit paid for itself pretty quick with the amount of time it saved me and the amount of material I could get through. I I think it was something like a month or so where I felt that it had like essentially paid for itself. And that was even on like processing other people's stuff that wasn't even single source at the time. Yeah, that's part of what I was going to ask is if you feel like automation might even come in handier to someone who strictly tool processes. Yeah, especially if you're a solo operation. If I was trying to do this whole thing just solo, it would be pretty challenging. I'd, I'd need probably two of these units to efficiently get through everything. But yeah, it is more than worth it for for toll processing, especially if you're really picky about who you work with and are working with stuff that you know washes. Because if um, you're doing a bunch of testing for people, it's it's going to take a lot longer to pay itself off. But if if you got stuff that no washes, like we we ran some Bicket through it last year, which does, I think on a bad day, it does 5%. And then Nick said he's gotten reports from people going all the way up to like sevens and maybe eights in the wash. I might be exaggerating with the eight, but I think I've, I've heard him say seven. So yeah, with 10,000 grams, that's, that's pretty good returns that, that will help you get through pretty quick. And without dedicating the whole day and, and just being a spaz, I could probably do four runs out of that machine in, in a day. Yeah. That sounds like a good number, especially like you said, if it's over 4k per run or so. Yeah. I mean, the, the bigger unit to the 50 gallon, we, we max it out at 10 K that's, that can sometimes be pushing it too. And then they've got a 65 gallon unit too. So yeah. So affordability wise, we only had like three options. Um, as far as we were concerned for scaling up, there was a hashtag, which seemed to be the cheapest for us. And then there's the Osprey and then the icon with the icon being the highest price for a unit. And then the Osprey being second, which I don't know how that stacks up now because the Osprey's added a whole bunch of different stuff to their thing, like a collection base, the bird, I think it's called. I'm not, don't quote me on that. And then their sieve collection system. So an Osprey with all the bells and whistles might be more expensive than an icon now, but you have a lot more to that whole setup. But yeah, for us, the hashtag made the most sense because it was actually in our eyes, an affordable unit. So that's the reason we went with that over the other options. Cool. That makes sense. Well, I think this would be a good time for a second smoke break. You down? I'm down. All right, let's do it. I'd like to take another moment to thank every person that makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 57 with Turp Wizard and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, David of Rosin Evolution, Nick the Intern, The Real Cannabis Chris, Solventless AF in Michigan, The Chile Relleno Burrito, Meltwalkie J, Garland in DC, Rezon Reserve, Kevin of Lifted Indina, Macro Melts and SoCal, and the Turp Wizard himself. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So at the beginning of the podcast, you talked about being DEM certified. What does that entail? And what do you feel like that has brought to your practices, whether it's the cultivation or the hash making or all around? So the Dragonfly Earth Medicine Certification is a outdoor certification for regenerative farms. 
that have closed loops. And a closed loop is a process. Well, it's easier for me to give an example than to explain what it is. So let's say you grew a plant. It doesn't even have to be ganja. It's just a, a plant in general. And then you took all the the trimmings and the leaves that fell and you returned it back to the earth or the, the plot of land where you're growing. That is a closed loop. So if I'm remembering correctly, there's, you got to have six closed loops at minimum, have your farm being operational for a year with the six closed loops. And then there's a bunch of other things associated with this certification. It's like treating your employees well, no synthetic nutrients, so no salt-based nutrients, and then no growing or making feminized seeds, I think is the other one. They've got a whole list on their website. If anyone's interested in checking it out, that will give you the whole thing in case someone is interested in potentially getting certified or this sounds like something they'd like to know more about. And one of the things that when we got this property was we went into mindset of like, we want to get a spot that can be DEM pure because we felt like that was the highest achievement we could get as a farm. So for us, like growing with nature, living with the land and trying to use as many resources in our area to grow food, medicine, whatever. It could be just even ornamental bush, but yeah, we wanted to get closer connection to the land. I believe that certification trying to close more loops and living in this way has brought us to a deeper connection with our land and realizing that everything comes from the soil and is eventually returned to the soil. So thinking about that practice, um, we try to bring as much diversity to our spot, either by making our own compost from our chickens, using any liquid manure from our ducks, our garden scrap, kitchen scrap, compost, and then sourcing alpaca manure from a farm about 10, 15 minutes down the road. So trying to bring as much diversity and life to our soil. Have you always been a soil grower? Um, Initially, no. For me, this process began in cocoa coir and bottled nutrients prior to growing in soil. It was pretty easy for me to go to the grow store. If someone tell me, get these things and that grow under this light, at bare minimum, you can get through a cycle. Maybe it's not the best. That's kind of up to all the little details you do and how dialed in your setup is. But that's where I started. You know, I was living in apartments and then eventually a tight suburb community. So it's kind of hard to do outdoor growing, especially in an apartment. There's not really options unless you're doing gorilla growing or something like that. We're able to rent some some land somewhere. So that application of growing worked for where I was at before, but I knew ultimately once I tried soil grown flour and eventually soil grown extracts, I was like, wow, this is way better than what I've had in cocoa coir or other mediums. Because at least from what I knew the mediums were grown in, this was the first time I like went to someone, the grower, tried all their stuff. I was like, okay, I'm making a switch. So growing under double ended HPS and cocoa coir running like mills nutrients or something at the time, I switched to. Build a soil 3.0, growing under LEDs, and then using dragonfly earth medicine teas. And that process of seeing the stuff, not only in, in my friend's garden at the time, but now seeing it in mine, I was like, oh man, I'm not, I'm not going back. I could get bigger plants and smaller size medium with the cocoa coir, but 
for me, it wasn't just about the yield. It was about how powerful the medicine was and your connection then with the soil because you're not getting rid of it every round. You got to keep it alive and thriving. And you just develop, once again, that connection with your soil that you don't have with any other medium. You expressed earlier in regards specifically to the Hugo culture beds that they're relatively young, let's call them, and you feel like over time they may improve. Do you feel the same way about the indoor soil that I'm that I presume that you're running? I don't know if I'm the best indoor soil grower. I think I've got a good little method, but I found at the last spot, we're getting to a point here. We're slowly approaching a two-year mark on some of these pots. And I feel like what I was seeing until we tried a new amending technique that they weren't getting as much nutrients. And I was doing top dressing amending. So like putting worm castings down and like craft blend. This is indoors. And I found that over time, it just wasn't enough for me. And so what we did recently, I think we started this like four months ago, was we'd empty the pots out and like remix it with a lot more worm castings and a lot more craft blend that is essentially tilling the soil. So it's not, it's not great. I wouldn't do that outside. I would just keep layering outside and it would eventually work itself out either through like the worms turning the soil, the various cover crop we use like radishes will kind of like make holes, either push stuff down or create opportunity for you to fill the gaps in or various other things in the soil will kind of like slowly turn it or as it breaks down the layers will kind of come together and indoors too there's such a quick turnaround between what you'd consider a season outdoors like from the time we empty the pot to put the one back in the it just is such more of a rapid period so i had to figure out a way to keep things going indoors to the same quality and standard i wanted to so we tilled our soil inside and remixed it to make it up to par where like i said i don't think i would I would never till the outdoors. I think that the Hugo beds will get better with age because things will start to break down. That woody mass will become more nutrients and be able to hold more um, water and other life as the process uh, unfolds. What has prevented you from growing in beds indoors versus doing it in pots? So to this point, I've only grown pots indoors and my flower space and my veg space are not on the same level. So I can't bring a bed upstairs to rest. I have a perpetual flower system inside. So if I was going to do beds, I'd set it up a little different. I would have probably made multiple rooms and allow the beds to rest before planting in. We're like bringing them upstairs. I can have a rest period before they're planted in and like be able to swap the plants in and within like a day or two be able to get the next round in. But just because the way I have things set up, a bed doesn't exactly work the best for our layout. Do you feel like the pots also give you an ability to more tailor suit this amendment of the soil for certain genetics? Or is it pretty much across the board, the way that you're amending the soil per round in these pots, relatively the same? So I guess a benefit of Growing in the beds is it's one huge soil system. So if I did a test, I would know for the most part how that soil is doing. With having so many pots, it would be very expensive. So I don't tailor the specific amendment to each pot. I just do the same thing and I find which plants work for that system. 
And then that's another part of the process of like finding plants, finding phenos that work for what we're doing. You mentioned using the HPS lights earlier in your growing career. Is that what you still use or are you using LEDs now? Once I made the flip to soil, we flipped to LED. We also did um, LEDs from that point on. So maybe it's been five, maybe six years since the switch to soil and LEDs. So relatively recent, not like yesterday or a year ago, but in the grand scheme of things in, in my lifetime, that's a pretty recent change. And what have you found with the results? Obviously, you've been liking them, or have you had to change LEDs throughout those five or six years as well? Part of leaving that business partnership for the larger metric grow, I had already bought a fair amount of equipment. So that was that included lights. So I got brand new lights when I moved. So I've only ran these, maybe the ones the longest been like two and a half years, maybe three. But yeah, when I moved, I I sold all my other lights. And I thought that going from my last spot to the bigger commercial grow that I was not going to be growing at home because that's how the laws were written. So that once you became an owner of a metric grow in Michigan, you can't be a caregiver. I don't know what the laws are like now, but at the time that was the case. So I was going to give that up because I didn't want to take any extra risk. I was putting a lot of time and money to get to that point. I didn't want to fuck up anything else and also didn't want to spread myself thin between two different gardens and just focus on that. So yeah, I did that change up between going big back to small. I had a lot of extra lights and was able to kind of start fresh with the newer version of the lights I already liked and used. Now switching topics a little bit, let's talk a little bit about rosin because when I first met you just some years ago, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you were primarily using heat tech at that time. And more recently, it seems like that's changed. Can you tell us about the process of why and maybe some of the discoveries that you've made throughout that? Yeah, so I took a class with Ken Wall in October a few few years back. can't remember how many years ago, but they were showing heat tech on how to essentially cure your rosin very rapidly. So you could press it and then heat cure it and have it ready to jar the following day. So for me, I really liked the opportunity for a fast turnover and to get it out and the ability to kind of force certain strains to be a certain texture. I enjoyed the process of exploring that to see how certain strains received that and how long it would take and what to look for. And I felt like I got a really good grasp of that. And then we started to release like half a batch this way, half a batch that way. So cold cured and then heat. And I was finding that more people were liking the cold cure. So that kind of got me thinking that I should do less heat cure. And then eventually we just kind of got away from it because it just seemed to be what most of the people who were supporting us like. I think there's something like sexy about the world cold cure that people like compared to like a heat cure. I don't know if you tell them it's heat cured even without maybe smelling it or trying it. Some people were not willing to even give it a try. So that kind of led me back to doing that. And I felt like it was a great tool to figure out and understand and realize where its applications can be used for the best of its ability. So that's 
why we went back to cold cure. And I think at some point, maybe we'll experiment again with maybe doing some jam techs. But for now, I think cold cures, what we're going to continue to do. Yeah. And it's funny that you bring up the jam aspect because from the variety of things that I tried from your garden, when you were using more of the heat tech, I don't really particularly remember it being jam-like. It was more like a saucy, really wet rosin is what it seemed like to me. Yeah, we would only get to the jam on accident on the fair few batches that it happened. It'd be like something went just a little bit too long. From the people I've talked to, it seems like the slower method of heat curing would be the the better way for me to experiment with that moving forward. But yeah, it just seemed like people were liking the cold cure better more. And then I, I could get the, I could get it pretty damn wet every single time, even with the GMO that we ran that would just be dry every single time with cold cure, but we could get it to be that beautiful consistency that folks were, were after. So like I said, it has its applications, certain drier strains. Maybe I would try that with first, if I was going to start going back into that, like a couple of the GMO hybrids we run are similar to that. They just come out dry Tropicana or sorry, Tropia that we run to indoors always comes out dry. So it'll just be strain dependent. And how much time has it added to your process to do primarily cold cure since you said part of your motivation of doing the heat tech learn from that class was to be able to get the product in a jar quicker? With smaller amounts that we do, like single plant runs or maybe like two plant runs, it's still relatively quick, like a day, sorry, not a day, it'd be a weekend. So let's say we press on a Friday, it'd be done by Monday most of the time. But with larger batches, Unless headspace in a jar, that process can take much longer. If it's an ounce or more or something, and and you've got a lot less headroom, that process is going to take. Uh, I mean, I've I've had a couple strains. Let's let's think which one took the longest. I think we had a ton of guava tree this year, and that one took like a month to cold cure. But there was a fair amount in that jar, and then the honey sherbana we just processed. I think it's two or three weeks into its cold cure and it almost looks still fresh pressed. So it could be maybe approaching a two month cold cure. It just kind of depends. Like if the room gets warmer, it could speed up the process. If the rooms get stays cold, it could continue to, to take a longer, it just, there's a few variables that can speed or slow it down. And, you know, I'm not really worried about the turnaround at this point. So yeah, I would say on most things indoors, the single single plants, double plants takes a weekend. Do you have any specific parameters for your cold cure environment since you mentioned, you know, it possibly going up and down and how that affects them? So I just keep it ambient temperature in our pressing space. So the reason it gets hotter and colder in the summertime and spring and the dead of winter, like the middle of it, I'll keep my AC running, but this time of year, like I turn off the AC and occasionally what will happen is our freeze dryers will kind of give off extra heat and that will make the the room a few degrees hotter. But I would say it stays in like low to mid seventies most of the time. I don't know if it ever gets in the eighties. Maybe if I forget to run the the AC unit, it will drop into the sixties during the dead of winter, but we don't really like to get it too much cold in that. So let's talk about micron ranges. We've talked about 
rosin and how it gets converted into either cold cure or heat tech. But we haven't talked about much about what kind of resin and what resin glands you're looking to put into the rosin. So do you have a typical formula per se for that? Or do you go from genetic to genetic? I would say that there's a difference of spectrum that we like to look at indoors and out. Indoors, the heads tend to be a little bit smaller for like the most ripe glands. And I'll see some good pulls in like the 70 and 90. And then outside, I'll see them fall a little bit higher. So like more than not, the best stuff is in the 90, occasionally 120. I haven't really experienced much higher than that. But yeah, I I guess it would just be what the environment is where I'm liking to pull. I I have been using more bags outside because I, I don't have as much experience with the same strain indoors and out. So I'm trying to see where stuff's landing and how, as that progresses through the washes to see if stuff's getting better or worse in each bag. And I'm finding that as we get deeper in the cycle that the 70 bag outside isn't always as it's, it's starting to get worse and worse. Or like I'll, I'll have the 70 bag all the way to the last collection inside and it looks great. But yeah, I, I, the two SKUs that we use for hash, we have our like, we refer to it as an A tier, would be 73 through 159. And occasionally outdoors, that'll be 90 through 159. And then our version of a full spec or our B tier would be 45 through 159. And I'm starting to rethink using the 45 after talking to some people. So there might be a time and period here shortly where we don't include the 45. So it might just be one tier and then separate it into where it falls in the wash. Yeah, I was going to ask, what differences do you see between, for example, tier A and tier B in the same strain? Well, we don't collect our 45 till the end. So we'll like set up less bags as it goes further down into the, the cycle. So like the first wash would be like, let's say we're outdoors, it'd be 70, 90, 120. 160, I think then it's 180, uh, maybe it's 190. I don't remember the, the micron at the top, but, and then, you know, as we go and be like, okay, this is, these washes are A, we'll put that. And then as we like, okay, this is all going to be B all the way through the rest, we'll do that. And then on that final pull, we'll have the two high micron bags. So the, the 160 and 180 or 90, I can't remember. And then the 25 and 45. And then on that last pull, we'll collect the 45. So yeah, the, the resin will come out darker as we go further in the cycle. And then if you go too far, we'll start, you'll start seeing green in it, but we try to keep an eye on it to where that will stop. I feel like the smaller skew micron that 73 through 159 or 90 through 159 is always lighter and just more flavorful and smells better. So I always think that that A grade per se is going to be the best stuff there where like the full spec is essentially there to be able to provide a more affordable option and still pull most of the medicinal parts out of the plant that I feel like are worth pressing. Speaking of skews and you brought up Mount Walkie, he's always curious what people do with the rest of their material. Are you also making edibles? And I know, for example, part of what you use your material for is to make your burger balm, which I'm a fan of. And I think 
uh, quite a few other people that I know are as well. We try to use as much as we can from the plant, especially with the 1% washers. You gotta, you gotta make the most you can out of what the plant's giving you. But we have a food grade hash. It's like everything under the 45 and then part 160 and above, depending, unless like any plant material got into it. Cause then that that's sometimes too, uh, we stack the 160 and the 180. So the 180 will catch all the thicker stuff. And then I'll just like discard that and just keep the 160 through 179. And then the 44 through 25 as our food grade. And then we will use that with the rosin bags, any second press we have to infuse it into coconut oil or make RSO. Then that coconut oil usually gets made into bergabalm or occasionally I haven't found the time recently or necessarily the passion to make edibles. So I have a friend who will do that for me. And I have a dairy allergy and like the idea of offering gluten-free and vegan edibles so that pretty much anyone can have them. They do contain nuts. So we're still figuring out an option that literally you could give this to anyone and they could have unless they have a very specific dietary restriction. But yeah, I, I try to use as much of it as I can in one way or another, I feel like that's honoring the plant to the best of uh, my ability. Yeah. And again, going back to the burger bomb, uh, I think it's for me, I'm a fan because it's very useful. Like, and you were telling me a funny story about how your first like weed job in Colorado, I think you were, I don't know what you were doing. You were like washing dishes for an edible company or something. And, and you got a bunch of this on your hand and like it, you really, you felt it afterwards. So I just find it interesting that the skin can be such a powerful tool for intaking cannabis in a different way. There's some people who have a pretty high tolerance for edibles. I say, I would say most of us don't. And for the people who are mainly smoking, when you ingest it or put it on your skin, your body's breaking it down in a different way. So you probably don't have a tolerance to that or maybe a slight of Split amount, but yeah, it's always been super effective for me, even on the smaller dosages. So I think you know, our skin's our biggest organ. It's a great way to uh, take in cannabis if you can find someone who makes something worth choosing. Yeah, you slept like twelve hours that time. You told me. <laughs> yeah, I, I like got home from work, which I think we finished up somewhere between four and six. I can't quite remember, and then I woke up the next day at like eight. So I, yeah, I got, I got more than 12. I just, I completely crashed. I'd, I'd probably like, I had a few hours in the dish pit with no gloves and there was oils floating on top. So every time I'd go in, it'd be on my hands and yeah, I was just, I was gone. That's hilarious. Let's talk about seeds a little bit. You know, we talked about them in the context of hunting through them, of going through different breeders, going maybe through people who create gear that isn't necessarily expected to produce genetics that do well in the ice water process. But throughout our conversation, you've also brought up genetics that you've created and worked on yourself. Do you consider yourself a breeder at this point? I don't think I am a breeder. I I don't, I just say I'm a seed maker. People ask the difference to me would be a breeder is mainly working lines and going in that project with a specific intention or goal for that plant to steer it in a certain way. A seed maker 
just makes a bunch of hybrids. And they might have a goal in mind, but they're not working these things to multiple generations or back crosses or something to get it to be stable. So at some point, maybe I'll consider myself a breeder. But for now, I've kind of looked at the seed making journey as like building a house and you start with the foundation. So I thought like maybe for like the first five years or something, which I'm now into year three, that I would make a bunch of hybrids using different males. And then as time goes on, I'd find selections and kind of interweave those and then try to eventually get to a point where like the males I'm using are stuff I made. And this last season, I've kind of been rethinking about the single male open pollination with a bunch of females in a field. Um, Next year, I'd like to try a three or four male plot collecting the pollen and then hand applying it onto certain branches in our greenhouses so that instead of only getting the opportunity to work with one male in a year, I can now work with multiple and create a lot more variety in one season. I think that'd be kind of fun. I've been talking to other DEM farmers on how they do this, specifically Daniel of Mountain Rock and I think it's Lion Pride Seeds. And he's been doing that for years and I'm always blown away at how many males he has to do and how many hybrids he makes. So I'm I'm excited to give that a try next year and see if we can maybe do our first back cross or maybe make an F2 that's in enough numbers to release or something along those lines. So just to clarify, you brought the F2 seeds up earlier. What, how would you explain what those are? So an F2 is, let's say you take a, F1 sour diesel and F1 sour diesel, you cross those, that makes the F2. And the the F1 is just a hybrid of two other plants. So as you get down the F lineage, it'd be taking that same population. So F2 and F2 make F3. You can't do like an F2 and F1 to make something that's not, that doesn't have a specific name from my understanding. And I'm, I'm still very, fairly new to this. So if I, if I slip up and say something wrong, don't hold against me. So now having the basis of what an F2 is, what are your creations up until now? Are they considered F1s? Yeah, they're just F1s. I've just made a bunch of polyhybrids, a bunch of one-offs. So it'd be, it'd be kind of fun to hunt those, make my selection, which we've started to, and there's a couple of things that I've gotten some great feedback on of that people would like to see F2s of. And I had a go at it this year with the creme de grapaya. The male wasn't as prolific as I was hoping. And I felt like that wasn't a good one to release. I didn't have a bunch of seeds to begin with. I only made like a handful of seeds from that little project anyway. So I'll give it another go somewhere down the line. But for now, that's uh, the project idea is put to rest. Tell us a little bit about the barn incident you had with the seeds last year. Yeah, so... Living out in the country versus living out in the city brings its own challenges. And some things you don't think about are maybe mice coming in. And mice are looking for a warm place to live in the wintertime. And a barn is a pretty nice spot, even without any AC. And so I, the first year, I didn't have any problem with this. I just hung up the plants from the rafters, let them dry, and got to them as I got to them. And for some reason, a couple of them, I guess, were extra tasty and just got munched to hell and they ate <laughs> i don't even want to really think about it but they for sure ate a few thousand seeds so there is some stuff that i was 
planning on releasing more numbers of and wasn't able to because of that. So this year I dried them in my house and I chopped off the majority of the extra stems and stuff that I, I used to just chop from the base and hang the whole plant. And now I, I was breaking it down by nugs and hanging it in those like column dryers that are made out of mesh. And that actually allowed things to dry a lot quicker. So I think moving forward, unless I have some big gnarly plants again, that I will uh, continue to to do it that way. How has it been for you to see your genetics, even though, like you said, you're relatively new to it and you don't consider yourself a breeder, but seeing these genetics out in the wild, let's call it, and seeing other people's hand and people finding things within them that they may like, including, like you said, people mentioning to you that they'd like to see some F2 lines of certain things. What's that experience been like for you? So I didn't necessarily get into making seeds with the idea that like a bunch of people would be growing it or I didn't really have a a grandiose idea. I just kind of made them because I wanted to preserve some stuff and continue it and try to make something fun. And I made way too many seeds my first time. So moving from one space to the next, my indoor garden wasn't ready. So I took all my plants in 20 gallons from one house to the next and put them in the ground in a first year Hugel. Like I got the keys to my house and within a few days we were building a Hugel culture to make seeds. So even before I was living there, my plants were living there and transplanting 20 gallon pots into soil was a challenge. I would never want to do it again, but three of the strains I made, the Grabana, the peanut butter baklava and the strawberry jelly, all our grape cream cake F2 hybrids. I made between 14,000 to 16,000 seeds per plant. So that was a very abundant year. And to see those seeds go out in the world and people either like have phenomenal results. Like recently I heard back from Rackham's that he he found this crazy washer, him and another, I think it was Bald Eagle Farms or Gardens. They found like a 7% washer from the strawberry jelly, which was really cool because that was the first hash plant I found from sifting seeds and then crossed it with more of Harry Palms gear or Bloom Seed Co. And that was so rad to see and like see it across the world. I've had people grow them in like Thailand, in Europe, like France or Spain. And it's just... It's really cool. I never expected that something I made in my backyard would be in so many different places. And to hear the great feedback from people and, you know, our orders, we give an extra pack of seeds because I always had that from my favorite makers. And then the stuff that was super abundant, we don't even count how many seeds go in the jar. So you'll you'll get like a 12 pack and end up with like 20 some seeds. Be like, oh my God, I never, not too many people are giving you that many extra seeds or it's just, it's just really rewarding and something I didn't anticipate going down that process and seeing like them make it to all these places is something really cool. And if nothing else, if anyone who's listening, to this is inspired to make seeds, you don't have to go crazy big with it. You can just make them for yourself and share with some friends. And that alone will be rewarding for you. The idea that you had an idea for something to progress its lineage and it's a, it's a really cool thing. I wish I would have done it sooner. So speaking on percentages, like you said, about Rockham's recent find with a seven plus percenter, I'm curious what 
do percentages mean to you in the sense of what all does that involve? Is that raw hash from 45 through the 180 or 190? Or how do you view that? The way I calculate percentages is from the 45 through 159. So essentially all the stuff that we pull for rosin. I don't I don't weigh out our food grade. The number that I care about the most is really the resin per square inch. Like we could have a, a bad wash number, like a sub 2%. And the wash is your hash, dry hash divided by fresh frozen. And that's how you're getting that number where your to rosin is rosin divided by fresh frozen. And another good thing to think about too is the return from the rosin to fresh frozen. So even though maybe something didn't do the best wash numbers, if the plant created a ton of fresh frozen and still hit what I want minimum per plant to produce for rosin, it's still worth keeping around. So those wash numbers are important, but they're not the end all be all. It's really about how much material is that plant producing to wash and then how much rosin at the end is that making and for you currently what are like kind of magic numbers that you're looking to achieve i know we talked about for example the anomalies like the one percenters but in an ideal world i like to hit 14 grams of rosin per plant in a harvest so like if i if i pull eight plants right i want each one to hit a half ounce that's ideal and now wash numbers, um, if we're just going off that, I like to hit bare minimum 2% in the wash. I've been trying to get better selections moving forward. Like the best one we've found has been five and a half. And I believe that was with Gmob. You know, finding the fives are pretty rare for us. Fours. Starting to pop up more, I'd say we regularly find stuff in the twos and low threes. And then I'm hoping as that process of sifting the seeds in the smaller pots and doing the test washes, that will continue to get better and go up as we can go through higher populations of seeds and make better selections without taking those risks. But I'm still going to have to wait maybe four months to see that first round go from the clone I took off that into flower and see the whole process from start to finish. Earlier, you said that you're considering based on speaking to others, taking the 45 out of the equation of the rosin. Would that then skew how you view percentages or skew the percentages that you see now? I think I would have to make some type of notation in my notes that I keep for wash numbers, like, hey, this is a change up so that now this is what you're getting. I don't think I, if I started to take the 45 out and only did a, a smaller skew, then that would be what the, the numbers are. I'm, I, I, there's not really a lot of 45 to begin with, so it wouldn't change that much. But yeah, that I guess I hadn't really contemplated that. So that's something I'm thinking about as we're talking about. I, but I'd for sure have some type of like asterisk in my notes like, hey, this was a different micron skew than you usually have used or compare it to previous ones that I know and be like, okay, this is what I should expect. What is the now bottom of the threshold? Is it a 1.8? Is it a 1.9? I'm, I'm not sure yet. You said that not a lot gets produced in the 40 or 45 regardless. 
do you feel like if there is a lot of production in that range, it's because something has not gone quite right? Yeah, I would say if that was the case, then that plant either was harvested super early, which shouldn't be happening because of how we have that set up. So let's say that wasn't the case. Maybe it was like some crazy equatorial strain that needs to go like 120 days. But even stuff that I've grown that has like those traits that are many weeks visually looking behind the others, I still get stuff in the 73 and above like that. The hazelnut cream back cross selections that we've kept look like that. They look weeks behind other plants, but they still mainly produce in the 73 through 159. So yeah, something would have had to go very wrong either on where the plant is in the room and we're early harvesting or I don't know, maybe the plant's just producing a bunch of smaller micron heads, which would lead me to believe that it needs a lot, much, much longer time of flowering. Okay, cool. Yeah, interesting. I'm always curious about that because I, I have heard something along the lines of like, you know, if there's too much in the 40, 45. It's not necessarily a great sign. It could be genetic, like you're saying, but you're also saying that even in the genetics that you would expect possibly to see that you're not necessarily. Maybe your bags are stretched and you don't have, you need to get some new bags. I, <laughs> I don't know. Jumping around a bit. One of the things that I admire about you and I've seen you do over the years is constantly evolve, whether it's like through your growing, through your techniques, but even the stuff that you're doing. You know, recently this year, uh, thanks to you, I was able to attend your Taste of Soil event. And whether it's that or merch or, or whatever you're doing, you're, you're always doing something. First touch on Taste of Soil and what that meant to you and what that was about. And then just in general, maybe touch on the fact on why you're always looking to do something new. All right. So taste the soil. To me, that was a event that I wanted to put together that I felt like we were missing in our community. And along the process of doing that, I gained a huge respect for the people who have been doing it, because I didn't fully grasp how difficult that process is and how much goes into it. And just getting a small taste on a small event, it made me very appreciative for the people who have been doing that for a long time and put the time and effort to do it, because that's not what I want to do all the time. I could maybe have enough energy to do two events in a year. Maybe. I think one was sufficient last year. And we, I might, I'm thinking about doing another one this coming year. But that event meant a lot to me because I, I wanted to bring together some really talented farmers who were growing in the soil, who were doing good work, and have a space for them to get together and offer their goods to people who were willing to come out. And a couple of my things that I wanted to include was I wanted to have it on a farm. I didn't want any of the vendors to be charged and I wanted it to be donation based for anyone who wanted to come. So essentially as little risk financially for everyone involved. You, if you just wanted to come by, bring your own stuff, show up, hang out and talk to people, that's cool. And then all the money that we gathered for parking was given to a local food bank. And um, Gracie, Yellow Moon, Yurt, 
she was nice enough to let us host the event at her farm and she helped source together the food, which was all sourced within, I think, 20 miles or something. I might be a little off on the distance, but everything from that meal that we offered there was sourced relatively close to her farm. So the meat was from one of her friends. The mushrooms was from a mushroom cultivator she knew. And it was just a really special thing to be able to to put that all together and have it happen. The second one was a little bit too quick put together and time-wise too close with too many events happening that same weekend. So unfortunately, the second one got canceled due to lack of potential attendance. So we decided to cancel it because I felt like it'd be better to have all those people who are coming out farmers and my friends to to be like, you should spend this time with your family or on your farm because I felt like it wasn't worth the effort to go out. So learned a lot from that experience. And I'm hoping to take what I learned from that to apply it to this next one. I'm not sure if we're going to call it Taste of Soil again. I don't really know. I'm hoping in the next few weeks, couple months, as winter kind of slows down our workflow. I have time to digest all that and have a second to really think about it and and plan what to do next um, with that and see how that can progress and grow. And I also have to talk to Gracie again to see if she will allow us to do that in her space because it was a really cool space to be able to have that on someone's farm. And then to talk about your second half of the question, always evolving. I guess, I guess that's how I would th- thought about that part. I don't like being stagnant and I've noticed that the people who survive the longest in anything adapt by doing new things. You always learn something. So I really pushed hard on merch this year because I've had a lot of people ask. So I made seasonal designs and I thought, cause that's what resonated with me. I thought it'd be kind of cool to have different artists make the wizard theme doing different things in each season. So we had like, our winter, fall, spring, and summer drop. And that was a learning process as well. I had a lot of time, a lot of fun doing the creating, talking to the artists, figuring out what colors the shirts will be, what matches, all that stuff. The part of it that I didn't enjoy was the logistics of delivering the things. Printing out labels and and getting everyone's stuff and, and figuring out how I'm going to meet up with them. That wasn't exactly fun. So I don't know. I think it's important to to listen to other people in your field and try to pick up knowledge. So I've, you know, been a student of this podcast for since the beginning and have tried to pick up as much free game from these people as possible and then meeting them in person and taking classes from different schools of thought I think has only benefited me and what I do and I think from an early age my grandma taught me to be like a lifelong learner like always to learn something new and try to, you know, continue down that process of education, no matter what you're in. So try to take that lesson from her to, to just keep pushing the craft in any way and, and to keep things exciting and fun. Cause I find that if I do the same thing all the time, it can lose something for me. So if I can find new ways to bring in excitement and joy and constantly be looking forward to the next thing that keeps me really involved and passionate about everything I'm doing. Do you think people can feel that in the work? I'd like to believe so with the growth that we've had over the last couple of years where 
we transitioned from the one property and garden to the next. I feel like to touch back on the leaving the business opportunity from one big grow to going small, that lit the fire back in me to to keep going and to like just push it as far as I could to, you know, be self-reliant. And I think the fire came from having to be self-reliant and having to pay off a mortgage, but also to, in a kind of fucked up way, be like, I'm going to make them wish they worked with me still in a way I, that might sound fucked up. And, but for me, that, that was the extra little kindling in there to be like, Oh, well you guys are probably going to do fine without me, but I'm going to show you what you're missing by just kicking ass the next two years and trying to be the best version of me and present what I'm doing in such a way that you can't forget about me. You're going to, you're going to notice me at least in all our small circle. I'm not trying to be some big, huge brand where I'm world recognized or anything like that. I don't have any crazy ambitions, but, but at least in our small circle of the world in Southwest Michigan, I think I've done a great job of keeping the fire lit and keeping, um, keep pushing. You brought up this situation that you had where you sounds like you were working with someone and the ambition was to be like in the metric system. And you just talked about having this fire lit under you by that situation, not working out. Would you say that's your biggest takeaway from that? And going back to something you talked about earlier of it not being an easy thing to have, you know, partnerships, what would you caution someone who's possibly looking to get into a partnership or considering it? My biggest takeaway from that situation would be, I mean, trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, you gotta, you gotta listen to that. And that I think I was really naive and young and wanted it so bad that I overlooked some things that were red flags in the beginning that it could have saved me a lot of time and other resources. But I was just so excited to work with these people and to get this going that I overlooked some things that it took me getting sick with COVID and having a couple weeks to just sit in my bed and think about all these decisions as well as kind of getting pushed around towards the end there that I felt that we haven't made any money yet. And that if this is how the situation is going now, that it's not going to get any better when money starts to come in and that becomes the equation. So for anyone who is going to go down that road where you're going to go into a large commercial setup or something like that. I would say, make sure you got paperwork because that was a huge mistake on my end. We come from a handshake business and go into the world of paperwork. That was something that I fucked up on and I can, you know, look back and say that that was part of me being too naive and excited and you know, if I would have done that in the long run, maybe I'd still be working with them, which I wouldn't necessarily be in this position here today, probably talking to you. And so some way that worked out <laughs> in the moment, you, it felt a lot different. And I would say for anyone else to another piece of advice would be to try not to be in a partnership, or if you do definitely be the one who has the leading share, especially if you're the one with the vision and have the knowledge and the expertise, you should be getting 
what's yours in, in the business and not like let other people come in and walk over you or whatnot. So yeah, I'm trying to be specific, but also vague because I don't, I'm not trying to throw shade on my ex-business partners. You know, I honestly do wish the best for them at the end of the day. And just because I had disagreement doesn't mean I want them to fail. You know, there's a group of guys involved that they started the same place I did. And I, you know, it's cool to see them fulfill their dream and whatnot. And I, you know, just because I'm not a part of it doesn't mean I have to be salty. If you would have talked to me at a different point in my life, that maybe wasn't my um, attitude about it. But here a few years out and where I'm at, I feel like that was one of the best decisions and moments, um, turning points for me. Yeah, I think that's some good advice. So I appreciate you sharing. And also, I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. I know you've been chatting for a while and you got stuff to do. So I'll start winding it down. One of the things I'm curious about is a topic that kind of came up on social media recently uh, through the real cannabis, Chris, and his not consuming cannabis for the last several years. And this is something that has shifted for you as I've known you throughout these, let's call it four or five years-ish. So I'm curious how you feel about not consuming cannabis, but being a cultivator of it, and then also how you're able to then now make selections and go through the pheno hunts without you yourself consuming it. Yeah, so that that was an interesting transition for me, being someone who would consume and use cannabis multiple times a day for years and years. Going back to that that business split, that was when I um really had a shift with my relationship with cannabis and and intaking it via like smoking and dabbing. So I got COVID, which it affected my lungs pretty, pretty bad. And I wasn't able to smoke without feeling like I couldn't breathe. So I took about a two week break off. And then when I got back to it, there was so much up in the air with that, me leaving and how that all played out moving forward, that I was having issues with my heart getting like palpitations and just feeling a lot of anxiety. So I stopped consuming and would just do it very briefly or like very little amounts moving forward. And in the more recent years, I, I use topicals a few times a week, but as far as smoking, I haven't really smoked a ton in the last year. Like my last dab was at Ego Clash of almost about a year ago. And the last time I smoked a joint was when we watched Frenchie Cannoli's documentary for, I think it was like 420 or around there. You know, I have had thoughts of smoking again more regularly, but I don't feel the need to to do it. I, I, I just want to be a part of things and, and be able to, maybe taste these selections and get a better feel for it. But, you know, I've got a good team with me who I trust wholeheartedly to help me bridge the gaps in any of the things that I have questions about. So I still have a really good nose and it can pretty much give you what to expect with the strain. You know, I can't give you all the nuance 
tastes and effects, but that's what I have my guys help me with. But I know what I'm looking for cultivation-wise and how it washes and the uniqueness on the nose. And more than not, that uniqueness translates into the rosin. So yeah, it is. it was hard to to wrap my head around how to tell people this for the first year or so. And thankfully I met Chris and got to speak to him who's someone who is doing the same thing. And I feel like at a much higher level and is much more of a well-known and respected brand. So to have someone like him to be able to talk with this through, and it's been kind of nice because as I share this more with people, they feel open enough to talk to me about their relationship with cannabis and how they want to take a break or when they do like how they struggle through it and then, or like how they feel better or whatnot. And just to talk about it, you know, that's, that's up to the person who's making that decision, how they want to do it. I'm not forcing that on anyone. I know for me, it's been great to, to do that. It definitely at the beginning made me feel like I had less credibility or wasn't as respected, but as time goes on, it's like, you know, I, it is what it is. This is where I'm at. I don't, I don't have to feel weird or scared to tell someone that I'm not consuming. I think I can still make really great selections and judge plants on what we want to keep around. I think it's been hard for me to necessarily become comfortable with sharing that with people. But as time goes on and I I wrap my head around it and, and talk to more people who have been on and off smoking that it makes it easier. And I feel like I'm a lot more productive in the day just because I have mental clarity for me to be able to fully go into things and not need to maybe take an extra nap or spend some extra time smoking. And I think at some point I'll, I'll get back to that point, but for now I'm enjoying the time experience that I'm going through at this current moment. Now, this may be a hard question is in the same vein and actually comes from conversations with Chris is what do you say to those folks that are out there saying, well, if you're not consuming for these particular reasons, then why are you still producing it for others to consume? I I still love it. Just because I'm not consuming doesn't mean that I don't have the same passion about it that I did before. It's still fun for me. It's exciting. I love to be in every part of the process from making it to selecting, to growing it, you know, to experience the whole life cycle of the plant and then to see other people enjoy it as well. So I don't know if that makes it harder for me or easier for me or, or what this is a different way of experiencing this whole relationship with the plant than most people have. And I've found that at the current moment, it's working for me. And I think at some point here soon, I'm ready to reevaluate that relationship and to see how going back to smoking will be being so long away from continuously using it. But I, I hear your argument. I just don't necessarily like agree with someone that you have to be constantly consuming the plant to be able to have the same feeling and relationship around the plant. You could think if you want to change out ganja with another thing, 
like, how do you feel about growing tomatoes and not eating tomatoes? Maybe you love tomatoes. Maybe your girl loves eating the tomatoes and you hate them. I don't like tomatoes. I still grow <laughs> tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And I, I appreciate your candidness and your openness to, to speaking about it because I think it is something that takes uh, courage to talk about. And again, it, it's kind of a topic that has come up recently. So I wanted to explore it with someone who is, you know, in a similar situation. So again, thanks for your openness on that. Regarding evolving, one of the things that has evolved for you is your packaging. It's, I think, one of the ones that for me kind of stands out quite a bit in, you know, a world where packaging is a big thing now. And you've moved over, transitioned over to having the wax type tops. Where did that come from? And, and do you look forward to continuing that? Yeah. So packaging has been another thing that's evolved for us. And it's been kind of a slow observing process. So I saw, I want to say it was Flying Lion Research. I think I saw him do it first. That was from my perspective. There may have been someone before him. But as far as what I noticed, I saw him get a whole bunch of different stamps made and put some really fun Mexico. I saw Aficionado do it for his seeds too. But as far as on jars of concentrates, I think maybe he started on BHO. doesn't matter. But um, that's where I saw it first on jars. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I love the the idea of mixing colors for how the strain expresses itself to me. So it started out with the wax as far as like the, you know, we, we went to Myron jars that, that was, I guess, step one to getting the next level packaging to keep up with other people, you know, UV protecting and a nice looking and feeling jar. Then it went to the wax and it takes quite a bit of time compared to stickering and then we wanted to do something else that made it a little more fun and kept it kind of feeling craft-like and putting more art to the jar and some thought into the packaging. And we went to a couple different artists. I believe I had two or three different artists make side wraps based off the idea I had. And initially, because of the wax, I was playing off of wine and alcohol culture. So I was... I. The first two were kind of looked maybe like an old wine bottle or something. That's what I was kind of like going for. Those ultimately didn't look good on the jar. They looked cool as designs, but on a, on the black jar, it kind of looked meh. And I, I just didn't like it. So we didn't go with those. I kind of sat back for a while and thought about what I wanted to do. And I remembered this bar in town that me and a couple other hash makers will go to and me and my guys like to go to funny enough I'm going there tonight to go have to see some friends to catch up for Thanksgiving and they have some iconic artwork that I really love and it kind of is a it's a fun place in town I don't consume alcohol but they've got a bunch of like pinball and arcade machines so we go there for that stuff and, and good bar food that is vegan and gluten free so I saw them the artist, I found the artist who did it. And I was like, oh man, I really love this stuff. Could you make something that resonates with this description I'm giving you? He came up with something really cool that I feel like now we get recognized for that specific artwork. It was a nice blend of finding an artist that's unique to our era, kind of paying homage in a way to the spot and having our own rendition of... um fun wizard kind of kicking back in the woods enjoying smoking 
yeah, I'm hoping to kind of do another level of packaging here soon where we're going to use that imagery to make a bottom sticker that is staying on fancy, trying to stay on that same note of keeping better packaging and evolving. And I also want to try embossing some stuff and, and making it textured so you can feel it. We also do a version of the the side wrap that's holographic. I think I touched on earlier that is for our one percenters. So just trying to figure out different ways to do that. And there's also an idea in my head of making another version of the label for the greenhouse so that just by the the side wrap, you'll know what garden it came from. So there's still some stuff in the works. Like I said, always trying to evolve, always trying to keep learning, picking up stuff from other people, not really in a rush. I just want to do it right and feel like it came out good. So we'll get there when we get there. Cool. Well, yeah, I think it's working for you so far. And I would agree. It's not only the the waxy tops, but the sides, they definitely make them memorable. So, you know, in a market with a lot of labels, uh, kudos on that. You mentioned going to a lot of classes and events, and I know that you've been part of some competitions. What have they brought to you, if anything? The classes and gatherings have been great to network and gain knowledge, more unlike the tech of doing stuff where the competitions have been interesting for me to figure out what regions gravitate towards what flavors based on what gets entered and what wins and kind of gives me the idea of what might be good to focus on to bring to my garden and to find seeds of. I think the first few competitions were fun for me to be a part of and I've found them sometimes difficult to keep a good spirit about them to be keep them light and fun instead of having a lot of ego behind it and be like, why didn't I win? My stuff's good. It's like, well, that person just has the better selection. And it's just been a fun experience to go to those. And I've, I had a couple, like the ego clash was a bucket list thing for me to go to. And I hope we get the opportunity to go again to another one. That one's really fun. I'm not sure if the stuff we're growing is quite in the palette of what would win there, but it's it's cool to see where we stack up as far as what we feel like our best material is at that current moment that we have available. But yeah, there's a lot of chance and luck as well as hard work that goes into what wins. The luck and the chance side comes into where you're at in the lineup because if you... We're next to another flavor that's really good of the same profile. You might not have as not as much recognition. And then it's just who's judging it and how they perceive your flavor. Have they had too much of that in that year? Have they had too much of in that lineup? So there's a lot of things that come down to what ultimately wins. As long as I can keep in the mindset that I'm appreciative to be there instead of taking it as a blow to my ego that we didn't win which we've never <laughs> won an award for our hash or our rosin. So yeah, I think, I think for most people, it would be a good, a good time. Same with the culture cup. That was interesting to see too, because they had a lot more gas entered where I feel like the stuff on the West coast that I've seen has been a lot of fruity stuff. Like even the smoking jacket from LA to Oregon was so different. Oregon's flavor profiles or what was entered in there was unexpected as well. I kind of just 
assumed the West Coast was a lot of the same profiles that people would be entering in that, and that wasn't the case. And funny enough, we had a lot of people come up from Michigan. So I think what kind of makes these unique also is like, you know, where people are coming from, where it's held, like you said, who they see judging or, or how the judging is being done and how maybe certain people look to play towards what they think might be favorable, or maybe it's just bringing your best selection. So it's complex. I don't think it's an easy thing to do. Like you said, a lot of it is up to chance, but most of it comes down to hard work, right? You're not going to bring something really good just by luck. Definitely. It is first and foremost, hard work. But after that, there's a lot of other things in the fact, just because everyone there worked hard. There's not a slouch in the group, right? It's just, did you bring the right flavor for the right year? Did it line up in the right spot for the judging? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Since you popped so many beans, and this may be kind of a remedial question for a lot of people, but out of curiosity, what's your methodology for popping beans? Oh, I do it probably as simple as it, as it goes. I get my soil wet, I put the seed in, and I let it grow. If the seed isn't going to come up, that's kind of nature saying that it wasn't strong enough, and that helps me kind of narrow down the population as is. That being said, I do try to select more people than not who grow in soil and try to support as many of the DEM or regenerative farmers that I can. So those people are probably already doing those things. So if you already have seeds that are used to less babying or not nothing extra when popping a seed, then they're probably going to already do that naturally. So I'm just kind of, I guess, looking for survival of the fittest from the start to finish. Well, final two questions. First, if you had to name three people who have been the most influential hash makers or people who have affected your hash trajectory, who would they be? That's a good question. There's been quite a few people who have helped me along my way. I'm trying to think back to maybe someone in the beginning, middle, and more recently that have helped me and been influential because there's for sure a lot of people and I'm sure I'll forget someone and think later that, oh, shit, I should have named them. At the beginning, I would say it's trichome heavy extracts, which would have been Ken Wall and Jibs, and I'm probably going to just lump them as one, as the company. In the middle, I'm going to have to say Brandon and Amanda of Garden of Grease. That'd be my number two. We're we're going to six, I think. Maybe five or six. I I don't know. It's not going to be three. (laughs) We're already at four. And then as of recently, I mean, the the most recent tech that I've got that it really changed up things, it would have been Kenjana because of listening to him switch up our washing. That was a huge realization to us that we could pull just as good and pretty similar amounts with less agitation time and ultimately have less plant material be in those later washes those would be my top three even though i named five (laughs) (laughs) no that's cool i mean like you said we we can do two and two as one and then the third but 
regardless, it's always interesting to me to see. And I think this is the first time that I can remember someone approaching it in this manner, where they're like picking from different points in their career, if you want to call it that. So that's interesting. There was a couple that came up to my head. Ken Wall was one of the first one that came up to my my head because of the class and, and the tech and like meeting him and, you know, going to that class actually got me some work with some people down the line because I met them there. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's a ton of people that I've caught little pieces of tech from. And I'm even starting to think now, I'd be like, oh man, I didn't need them. But, you know, those are the three that came to my head off of a quick think of it and, and to think of different points where they influenced me and um, helped me along my journey. Cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing. So final question. If you could hear from someone on the podcast who hasn't been on, who would it be? And I know you are a pretty avid listener, so I'm curious. Yeah, I, I'm pretty certain I've caught every episode. Now, these might not be the typical hash people that someone might expect. And I could have, I could have several different lists if I wanted to be like listening to seed makers or hash people. But someone who comes to mind that I've seen make great hash and is also another, a fellow DEM certified farm is Green Source Gardens. I think the way he, and his wife and anyone else on the farm approaches things is really amazing. And, and their farm is really inspiring to, to even try to even reach the type of abundance they have on their property. So that would be my first pick. I think Jesse from BioVortex would be an interesting one. I'm not sure about how much hash he's made or anything like that but I know his genetics have been great for hash makers and I know that he works with a lot of talented people who make hash with his gear and I just love the perspective he has and the few opportunities that I've gotten to talk to him have been really awesome so that would be number two and then for the third one that I could think of would be Swamp Boy Seeds, Cornbread Ricky. I'm not sure how much hash that that crew has made either. I'm sure they've done some because their gear usually does pretty good for it. We've ran the Le Mans F2 from Kushkirk, but the original stock came from them as well as the 007 Up. And those are some really cool lemon washers. So those... Those are probably the three that I'd like to hear from that maybe aren't necessarily primarily hash focused group, but make cool genetics as well as just are generally interesting people. Cool. Yeah, I think those are great recommendations. And for sure, I try to keep an open mind. I know a lot of the people on are primarily hash makers, but there definitely are a range of people I think to talk to and that can, you know, further inform the conversation around hash, including the genetics, like you said. Yeah, I I mean, it is the Hashishin, so we're here to learn about hash and to have hash-related conversations, but there's so much that encompasses that realm that it would be kind of interesting to hear from some people behind the, the genetics or like have different perspectives or opinions about it. But you've done an excellent job 
so far. So I'm excited to see who you got on in the future. No, I appreciate that, man. Yeah. And we'll, we'll see, you know, just only, only destiny knows what will happen. But again, I really appreciate you not only coming on, but taking a large chunk of your day to hang out with me and chit chat. Do you want to say anything before we sign off? Yeah. Um, like my grandma said, be a lifelong learner. Cool. I think that's a great model, man. I, I like it myself and definitely it's always inspirational to, to want to keep learning and keep growing and keep doing things like you said, and, and keeping a passion while doing them as well. So again, thank you, Connor, for being on and for anybody who kept up with us this long. Again, if you want to follow Connor on Instagram, it's at turf underscore wizard. We'll catch you all next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.